running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird, and this is Bone Ditch, my series of mystery short stories. You can find more at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com. This is the 14th story in the series, but don't worry if this is your first or if you've had a sleep since listening to the last one. Each story stands alone. All they have in common is that we're in a world where a catastrophe plague is airborne, a plague that looks like a long dead witch. People are falling into the bone ditch in the dark and they can never climb out again. The fall changes them irreparably, fractures them, breaks their bones. When those bones knit themselves back together, the skeleton is different. For some, that's a fate worse than death. To others, it's simply death. But for some, while the transformation can be chaotic and unwelcome and strange, it is an opportunity to become something ferocious and impossible and true, cosmic and of the earth. They lick the blood from their teeth and stretch wings they never had. So is the bone ditch a cemetery, or a trap, or a virus, or a nest? Is the bone ditch an impossible fiend, or the thing that is perfect, that wants to bend the world into a chaotic arena of compulsive invention and fierce inspiration? This story is called The Curse of the Warehouse. John Tennant had never been so cold in all his life. It was mid-December at midnight, and the rain that tore against him had in it slivers of ice and bone. His clothes had been rags before the storm started. Now they were a sodden shroud. He would never be this cold again. This was the end. It had been nine months since his dad had thrown the 17-year-old out of the house on a spring morning that John had always known would eventually end in winter. The house had never been a home, really, but it had been a shelter of sorts and he'd always felt at least reasonably safe there. Now John was alone and although his father was no longer a danger to him, everything else in the world stank of threat and the ruins that would come with the morning. It was the end. It was just that his heart was still beating. The boy stumbled to the ground. All around him were houses and flats, lights burning in the windows, curtains drawn against the storm. He was going to die in this city, surrounded by civilization. It clearly just wasn't his civilization. The end of the world that no one else had noticed. He tried to crouch down against a short wall, trying to hide from the storm. It still found him, lit as he was by all the lights in all the windows. He closed his eyes and he stopped shivering and he stopped bracing himself against the wind and the knives that hid within it. John didn't realise that he had stopped breathing. Suddenly, amidst the knives and ice, there was bone settling on his head, his face, like atomic ash, like snow with a smothering purpose. John somehow found the strength to open his eyes and looked up at a woman standing before him. Her hand was cradling his face, her three eyes were staring into his own. She withdrew her hand and stepped back. She cocked her head at him and stepped back from him again. She was thin and dressed entirely in black, and her hair was a tornado of snakes in the wind. Her face was as pale as bone, but somehow simultaneously entirely dark and shadowy, and the smile that ran straight across it was a monolith, something ancient and alien that you stumble across in a desert that is only a smile because that's what your brain looks for when you're in danger. She was short and dark and thin and wearing warm clothes, but the John that started to pull himself to his feet just then, that had stopped breathing, looked at her and saw something else entirely, something infinitely cold and infinite, but still the only beacon that he could possibly follow now that he was this far into the dark. She turned away from him and walked between the streetlights, threading her way through the shadows. John followed her, breathlessly. She led him to a patch of grass, amputated by the lights of the civilization that sprawled around them here at the end of the world. Even in this midnight, John could make out a small bungalow in the middle of the shadows, sitting incongruously on the grass, back from the street. 
The bungalow was small and there were no lights in any of the windows, but the front door was open. The woman in black was suddenly gone. John staggered through the front door and shut it behind him. The house was dry and warm and empty. The house was small, only had a kitchen and a bathroom, a completely empty living room and a fourth room with a bed in it. There was no other furniture in the house, but it was carpeted throughout. There were curtains hanging in the windows and there was electricity and hot running water. The only personal effects John could find at all were a neatly folded pile of clothes in one of the living rooms, a towel in the bathroom and clean linen on the bed. John couldn't resist. He stripped and took a hot shower, lay his clothes over the radiator in the bedroom and crept into the bed. He was asleep before he could wonder whether or not he was dead. John Tennant awoke in the heat of the early morning sun. The storm had passed entirely, his body was warm and rested, and he was naked and lying in the middle of the grass. Next to him was his pile of clothes, clean and dry. He quickly dressed, but apart from whoever had taken him out of the house, no one else seemed to have noticed him. He looked towards the bungalow, but missed somehow. The house wasn't there now. He was definitely still off just the same street he had stumbled down and nearly died on the night before, but this was clearly another garden park. He must have been fatally exhausted. He couldn't believe that he had, hadn't woken up when someone had moved him. He looked around, looked into the windows that looked down onto the garden park. No one was staring back at him. No one seemed to have noticed anything. It was the first time in nine months that he hadn't woken up aching or exhausted. His young body metabolised the energy that the night's sleep had given him and, stirred with exhilaration for the first time in months, he dashed off into the day. People he had met had warned him not to waste energy roaming through the day. But he had strength and drive for the first time he could remember since telling his dad the truth and he didn't want to waste that enthusiasm now on just getting by. It was a foolish calculation, he knew that. But he suspected that it would be a sin to waste a good feeling, a rare positive mood. Besides, it was perfectly possible that he was already dead. If that was the case, then he wanted to know just how big purgatory was. John had always hated the city, but he had felt trapped there. Time was crawling on, the year was about to die. If he was going to leave and try and find some freedom from the filthy streets and the anonymous shadows that sucked him each night, then now was his chance. Now would always be his chance. He snuck onto a train, not paying much attention to its destination, and jumped off at a station whose name he didn't recognise, out in the middle of nowhere. Stepping off into the strange platform, the city miles and miles behind him, he felt that seed of optimism that had germinated within him overnight split and burst into a strange life. He imagined being threaded through with a delicious, delirious vine that was bursting with vibrant and thrilling possibilities. He was smiling even though he was alone, and even though his lips were cracked and sore. John Tennant was new here, and he would find a new life. Hours later, as the sun started to burn down the sky and the chill began to creep out of the shadows to swaddle the world again, John still felt that optimism, but he recognised the fear that now tinged the feeling. He was out in the countryside. The earth was black and as hard as stone and the trees that tensed and shuffled around him were growling something at him that he couldn't understand. Birds flew high to stay away from the cold dirt and the air swam with smoke from fires that were drawing closer. It was good to be a stranger somewhere new instead of being just the lingering stink of an old mistake. Hours later, the sun was completely gone and the wind was hacking away at anything it could find. The cold was back in his lungs and in his bones. John wasn't surrounded by a civilization adept at ignoring him, as he had been the night before, and there wasn't rain that was drying, trying to flood him, to drown him, but he was suddenly and unfathomably aware of his loneliness and vulnerability. He was out of the city, but still he had no home. He had made a mistake. A good night's sleep had given him a few heartbeats worth of ambition and so lit up with hope he had made a reckless decision, but it had been a reckless decision too far. 
Now there was frost in his hair. His fingers were aching. It hurt to breathe. He couldn't see a thing. He felt the neonatal vine that had been twisting and growing in him all day finally falter and curdle. He felt bitten and gouged. He stumbled to the ground. But it had been a good day. A good day after a good night. His last memories would carry that warmth even if the rest of him was barren and frigid. It would be just like going to sleep. But. Wait. Just as he closed his eyes, his heart detonated in his chest, flaring and searing through his bones, all of them, filling them with molten accidents and an alien and unforgiven impossible architecture. His skin seemed to burst into flames, hardening to a scarred, hard hide that grew rigid and impenetrable as it cooled in the midnight air. Quicksilver chants flooded his arteries, rearranging and rewiring them, filling them with hot oil and electricity. His clothes began to tear, began to fall off his body in tattered shreds. He howled, he howled and he screamed, his shrieks of agony only ending when the door slammed shut across his mouth. And after that, the night passed quietly. The wind couldn't blow down his walls, couldn't break down his door. He couldn't work out what had happened exactly, but he was strong and sheltered, still and safe. He understood on some level that this had truly happened. A man walked by exercising his dog. He looked at the house standing there and couldn't for the life of him remember having seen it before. It was a new build, a bungalow, a little small but it looked well made. A tall vine stood in the front room window. John Tennant woke that morning, lying in the same field he had collapsed in the night before. He was completely naked. His shredded clothes lay around him, even his shoes were discarded and torn to pieces. He sat up and felt a powerful calm fill him. Another wonderful night's sleep. He understood what had happened. His life became stranger after that, but more secure. As long as he could find a quiet piece of ground at nightfall and remove his clothes in good time, he would safely transform into his own shelter, his own home away from home. He would awaken in the morning, completely refreshed and energised, pull on his clothes and escape into the new day. Home was suddenly where the heart was after all. He guessed it must have been that house in the city, the one that the dark woman had shown him. Perhaps it had been a creature like him, and had transformed back into a person before John had awoken. Perhaps that was why the house had seemed to have disappeared in the morning. Was it like an infection, like being bitten by a werewolf? But three weeks later the winter became impossible. You know the feeling, those early January days when Christmas and joy are forgotten and it's still a long march through the freezing mud till spring. It didn't just become colder, it became wetter, and the damp that crept through your clothes and under your skin carried with it a slimy, stinking frost that rotted you out with mildewed corruption and viscous rime. During the days he begged for food, looked for work, tried not to give in to boredom and desperation and fear for the future, tried not to wish away his days to get to the night, when he could become still and safe and simply go home to rest. It was easier to be a house, to shut out the world with thick walls and a locked door. It was easier to sleep through the world of stone and brick. But then he stumbled on the children. There were nine of them, all between ten and sixteen. They stayed together to try and stay safe, but they were homeless like him and the same vultures and parasites that had waited for him to collapse and become food were now circling them. They were all sick, they were all exhausted, they all staggered on out of fear instead of hope, terrified of being spotted, terrified of being found. There had been ten of them the week before. John convinced them to meet together that night at a secluded address on the outskirts of town down the bottom of a lane. He made sure he got there first, made sure it was safe, and then he stripped and he transformed, and when the children got to the address they found a home waiting for them. He was worried that they would begin to transform each night, catching his curse just as he had started to transform after his night in the strange house. But they didn't. Perhaps these children were too young. Or perhaps that strange house he had discovered that night had other, more infectious powers which he didn't share. 
Perhaps it had been the dark woman who had passed him the gift. Perhaps he simply didn't have planning permission. Whatever, that didn't matter. At least he was home. He couldn't tell the children exactly what was going on, but when they all woke up outdoors down the bottom of the lane, with John Tennant there among them all of a sudden, they understood that something important had happened in the night, and now that they had hope. By the end of the first month, there were 40 homeless children living in the floating home each night. They moved together around the town, from Overlook suburb to County Outcrop, understanding that John had secrets, but that even though they would never understand exactly what was going on, those secrets would keep them safe. The next two years went on in this vein. Children grew up, found their own homes, vanished or introduced friends. Life was hard, but at least they were safe at night, at least they had a sanctuary of sorts. John discovered to his joy that as more people lived within him, so he grew larger. More bedrooms, a bigger kitchen, extra bathrooms, and even appliances began to bud up and grow within him. His other self was bulking up as if in response to an exercise regimen. One morning the children told him delightedly that the night before there had actually been an upstairs all of a sudden. They tended to stay in one spot only for a week or two, moving on when the threat of being noticed began to find foundation. Their hometown was big enough that they never had to move too far in any direction to find a new camp, where the sudden appearance of a new house would not be noticed. They had to keep moving, of course. There was always the risk that they would attract attention and raise suspicions, but as long as they were careful, they were usually invisible. The more they travelled, the more John Tennant recognised that he had never wanted to grow up to be invisible. The longer they circled and threaded their way through the hometown, the more John wanted to leave and explore. Because this wasn't the life he wanted, was it? Helping others was wonderful, being able to help others was a privilege, but he wanted more. He wanted something for himself. He wanted company of his own. He was a home to others, but had nowhere himself to call home. Nevertheless, domesticity beckoned. He got a job, and what was more, it was the kind of job that some of the others could do as well. A housecleaning company in their large market town happened to be hiring, and John managed to get in. Once in, and once he'd managed to prove himself, he was able to get some of the others in as well. It felt like smuggling. The money wasn't great, but his employers didn't care to look too closely at him or the others, and suddenly it was a chance. Nothing too permanent, but it was a change of pace. He was nervous about it, but after talking it through with some of the older children, he managed to find the resolve to find a plot and stick to it. A new build site on the edges of town. Scaffolding was going up and coming down all the time. Dozens of new homes popping up like magic. Just the kind of magic that could disguise his magic. He selected his plot, and suddenly his family had a base. No more caravanning it, they would come back here each night. John would insist that the children work up early to give him the space he needed to change back and get on with his day before anyone in the neighbourhood, their neighbourhood, noticed. It was winter. Fortunately, there was a lot of darkness to go around. So during the day, he and his children would head off and clean some stranger's home. Travelling could be tough, took some planning, but they managed it, and managed even to save some of their earnings. Winter wouldn't last forever, and before too long, sunlight would bring witnesses and flaming pitchforks. The more hay they could make while the sun wasn't shining, the better. Janet, who was 17, going on 59, smiled at him. I think we can make this work, she told him, and I think it's given me an idea. She wouldn't be drawn any further until she had it all worked out, but to hear Janet try and sell it, John felt almost optimistic. That morning the two of them were cleaning the same house together. The owner had left the front door of the bungalow unlocked and was tactfully absent, so the two friends were free to talk about their plans and dreams without eavesdroppers. Except suddenly they weren't. You've gone pretty quiet, said Janet. What's up? John looked terrified. John, John, what is it? He was standing in the middle of a bedroom and he was shaking. I've been here before, was all he managed to say. Janet understood immediately and dragged her friend out the front door. They stood on the drive and looked at the house, holding each other's hand tightly. 
It was an average-looking bungalow. It probably came from the late 90s, but as the two of them looked at it, they noticed more and more peculiar details. The drive was just a scrap of land, not paved at all. The house was bound on all sides by tall, unkept and unkempt hedgerows that blocked out the sun and hid the house from the road, and there was no keyhole on the front door. This is the place where you... started Janet. Yes, said John. The night after I stayed here, I changed for the first time. Was this where it happened? In this town, I mean? No, John shook his head. The house was miles away, but it... he... was definitely this house. But it's daylight. Why is it... why is she... whatever... why is he still a house? Why hasn't she changed back? I don't know, said John. They finished cleaning the house, but they didn't leave the address. They sat on the drive and watched it. Time passed. We have to go and meet the others, Janet said. Bring them here, said John. Are you sure? John wasn't at all sure, but he knew he couldn't leave home again. So she left and he stayed there, watching. Time passed. John fell asleep, just for a second. And when he woke up, a young man was standing there with him, and of course the house was gone. Hello again, said John. The young man smiled. I didn't think I'd ever see you again, he said. I'm John, John Tennant, said John, reaching for normality. I'm called Wayne Manor, said the young man, kicking normality into the long grass. I changed into a house too, said John. Wayne's drawbridge dropped. Shut the front door. They talked, but didn't really have very many answers for each other. Wayne didn't know why he could remain a house during the day, but he was glad that he could because that made it easier to roam about after dark. He quite liked doing that. He had started changing about ten years before, after he had been struck by lightning while trying to break into a house. His younger life had been slightly less reputable than John's. I figured it was some kind of, you know, ironic punishment. I used to do a little housebreaking, so, you know, now I turn into a house, and that's the sting in the tail ending of my story. You never met anyone else who could do this, said John. Never, of course not. Did, did no one else ever stay the night in you? Wayne grinned like an estate agent. No one who went on to change as well, but I enjoyed being neighbourly all the same. And the house that you were trying to break into? I never went back there, said Wayne. Didn't you ever think that it could be like us? Mate, half an hour ago it never occurred to me that there was an us. John looked amazed. We've got to find that house, he said. Wayne was a bit surprised to discover that John had an entourage. I never even considered, he started to say. He looked at John a bit differently after that. They started to plan their expedition. The older house Wayne had described was more than a day's journey away, and John was worried about the children, so Wayne hired a mobile home. It turned out that he had a savings account and everything. Building society, he explained. You've got to be a little bit responsible. Somehow they all fitted into the vehicle and set off. There were nine of them, Janet, John, Wayne and six children. Neither Wayne nor John could drive, so it was fortunate that Janet lived in the real world. The journey in the mobile home was eye-opening. The kids were thrilled to be travelling in this relative comfort. Wayne was happy to have an audience. Janet was enjoying being in charge. And John was actually feeling at home for once. He stretched out in the front seat between Janet and Wayne and smiled as the countryside rushed by him. Janet had recommended avoiding the motorways just in case there was a good reason for the motorhome being as cheap to hire as it was and just in case all these children on the move drew any attention. Wayne kicked up a fuss about that, but John could tell that even this lean piece of desirable residence was excited to be on the brink of understanding something so important about his confusing life. John felt close to the other man, his landlord, he supposed, and he recognised how they both shared that impulse, that gravity almost, 
to overlook crucial and impossibly personal parts of their lives. It was like having a locked door in your home and never looking for the key. You just live in a smaller and smaller place until someone points out the irrationality of it all. John would never willingly live in solitary confinement again. It had taken a cellmate to point out that there were answers that could be obtained, changes that could be made. The country continued to speed by. Escapes that could be carried out. The trip took twice as long as they had planned, but nobody minded. When they stopped for the night, Wayne and John undressed with their backs to one another, almost chastely. And when they were ready, there, just off a country road miles from anywhere, Janet led the children to the two houses, sitting next to one another as if they'd been there forever. No one slept inside Wayne Manor, though, preferring John Tennant. Perhaps Wayne noticed this. They eventually reached the town, although it took a lot of driving around until Wayne eventually found what he thought was the house. The building was old, at least 150 years old, and seemed notable only for how everyday it was. It was boxy, three stories high, perfectly symmetrical apart from that single bottle green front door in the middle of the fascia. Above the door was a circular window, stained glass with a circle of brilliant blue in the centre, and a smaller circle of pitch black glass in the centre of that. It's an eye, said Janet. It was Janet who stepped forward and knocked on that front door, and Janet who noticed that this door also lacked a keyhole. She pushed on the green wood and the door slowly opened, revealing a long, dark hallway. Wait, said John, but she stepped over the threshold anyway. Stay in the van, kids, Janet said, and wandered further in. Wayne and John looked at one another and followed her. The children sat in the mobile home and watched as the green front door beneath the blue glass eye window closed. The house was old, but not worn out. The wallpaper smelled of arsenic, but wasn't faded or peeling. The furniture old-fashioned, practically antique to Janet's eyes, but seemed somehow new. There were no radiators in the house, no electrical sockets. If they remained in the house after dark, they would need to light the oil lamps and candlesticks. Janet noticed that all the lamps were filled with oil. She remembered an early childhood visit to a great-grandparent's house 15 years before, not old like a museum piece, not preserved or stuffed, just something that had survived unchanged for a long time. There were fresh flowers in vases and wound clocks marking the seconds. The three walked close to one another. They recognised that there was someone in this house with them. It was a family house, they all recognised that. Five bedrooms, one master, one decorated for a child, two guest rooms and the last bare but for a neglected and skeletal bed frame down under the main staircase in the hall. There were no photographs, no pictures hanging but the shelves were filled with books and toys littering the corners of the rooms. Everything seemed brand new, but nothing seemed to date from after 1900. This house had been misfiled in the wrong neighbourhood by more than a century. It occurred to John as he wandered through the house. When Wayne was a house, he seemed to be from the end of the 20th century, which was probably when he had been born. John himself was a little older, but felt that he was the same kind of house as Wayne. The human behind this address was clearly a lot older than both of them. Oh. Oh, fuck. Janet and John looked over at Wayne. He was standing at the entrance to the dining room, supporting himself against the doorframe. What is it? John asked. Wayne just pointed. Down at the floor, between the rug in the dining room and the rug out in the hallway, there, on the black stained wood of the floorboards, was a footprint, stepping out of the room. A large foot, a perfect imprint, every detail there from heel to toe. The footprint was in blood. The blood was fresh. The three of them looked into the dining room from where the bloody footprint was leading. There, across the pale rug, a long stride, heavy tread marks, a tall, powerful man striding, not rushing. 
There were a series of similarly indelible prints, stalking blood through the dining room from a small doorway behind the fireplace on the far side of the room. The three of them tentatively walked into the dining room. Apart from a smashed toy train, also stained with fresh blood, the room showed no other signs of distress. It didn't occur to any of them to leave the house there and then and call the police. None of them had sufficient trust for that. It didn't occur to any of them not to trace the print back to the doorway behind the fireplace either. They walked through the dining room to that small black wood door set against an internal wall that formed the centre of the house. From where the wall stood, they supposed it opened up into the front parlour room at the front of the house. But the door seemed too small, surely. John opened the door and sure enough, instead of through into the front parlour, instead of a view of the front room and the plate glass window looking out onto their mobile van, there was a brick wall hung with a mirror. There were steps to the left leading down at right angles, snaking down around the chimney into what must have been a basement. John looked down the stairwell into the gloom of what must have been, surely, a basement. Wayne and Janet just stared into the mirror. John saw at last what his companions were staring at. It was in the mirror, or rather it was on the mirror. Not a stain, more like a scorch mark, a reflection that couldn't be sloughed, an impression that couldn't be erased. Oh God, said one of them. It wasn't God. Whatever it was, it wasn't God. It was the reflection of a man, blurred now, stained in grey like mould on blood, painted over the glass in mercury and murder. The reflection was of a tall man, a man in grey, a man of grey, glancing into the mirror as he looked over his shoulder before leaving the basement finally. His expression was blank and resigned, not cruel, not unkind, simply content and at peace. But there was something in his face, wasn't there? There was something compulsive, something that you recognised, something that was everyday and familiar, something that you even enjoyed, but worn here so flagrantly that it seemed disreputable, like a glimpse of stocking. It was easy hate and casual rage. It was rage and hate carried lightly, the way a young father would carry a toddler on his shoulders, as if anger could be natural, a blessing, as if loathing were a condition of life. The grey man had seared his reflection into the mirror and then walked blood up from the basement across the floor and back out into the world they all shared. There was no light switch in this little room, of course. The stairwell down into the basement was pitch black. The three of them stared down into the hole and then they heard the small, weak, keening weeping of a young girl down in the darkness of the basement. They didn't hesitate. They ran down the stairs together. They were terrified, but none of them, not even Wayne, who had recently used the word neighbourly to describe an act more in common with the grey man than he would have liked, could leave a child crying alone in the dark. At the bottom of the stairs, which had looped twice around the chimney, was indeed a cellar. They couldn't see anything at first, but they could all hear the weeping. Dreading what they might step on, the three of them moved deeper into the room. Sweetie, let us help. Can you hear us? Honey, are you there? The voice that came back at them was cracked and broken. The voice was the fractured iron bones of a killer in agony, dragging itself towards its victim across cold slate. The voice was a child hoarse from a century of screaming, forming obscenities from her deathbed. The voice crawled around the sound of the quiet weeping like an insane leviathan worm. It was the voice of the girl who was also crying. The saint, said mother and father, shouldn't have led the dead woman shelter here. The saint, said mother and father, had made the wrong choice. The saint said we had no one to blame but ourselves. 
The three of them froze. The voice and the crying was all around them always and in every direction. In the endless night of the cellar, they couldn't find each other, let alone the young child, let alone the stairwell back up into the sane world they had now grown to take on faith. Now there was just the crying and that hideous voice. Now our home is broken, the voice said. Now mother is dead. I have to be the homemaker. I'm only six, but I can do it. They sensed things at their feet. They smelled something on the air, something sluggish in the cold, but powerful and long dead. They stared into the darkness and the madness they had been cultivating their whole lives began reluctantly to reveal the phosphorescent traces of hideously abused figures in the blind night all around them. They ran. Wayne got out of the house first. Cold sweat caked his body, his heart continuing to attempt to tear itself out of his chest even after the children in the van had started to point and laugh at him. He stared back at the house and fell on his ass. Just an old house. Just a stupid, deserted old house. He couldn't move. He sat there for almost a quarter of an hour before John burst out, just as he had. Where the fuck were you? Wayne yelled. John collapsed to the ground, gasping for a breath, retching the air from the basement out of his lungs. The air was like worms, he thought chaotically. The air was just like worms. What are you talking about, he said at last. I just ran, I just ran out, he shuddered. Where's Janet? The two young men sat on the ground, holding hands, staring at the boxy, everyday, symmetrical house. They listened to the children play and gossip in the van behind them. They listened to the birds in the trees and the cars on the road mark out the passing minutes. At last, half an hour later, Janet tore out of the house, slamming the bottle green door behind her. She tripped and fell to her knees, then looked up at John and Wayne. How did you get here ahead of me? She gasped. We've been out for ages. Where have you been? What? What? I just came straight out. The three of them looked at the house, the abused and abortive home put together by a six-year-old orphan corpse, deserted and left trying to play homemaker at the scene of its murder a century before. The three of them held each other's hands, stared at the building, listened to the sounds of the children behind them playing and gossiping in their mobile home. They didn't return that mobile home, they just drove. Night fell and they didn't stop and they didn't sleep and Wayne and John didn't even transform. The three of them just drove. They had no home to go to, they just had to escape. They finally stopped to eat, to buy food and to refuel the mobile home and to let the children stretch their legs, but then they started driving again and they never looked back. Janet and John and Wayne drove until, finally, the mobile home growled and whimpered and died. They were in the middle of nowhere, but that wasn't as scary to them as it would have been to us. They were in a field, or something that would have been a field had it been owned by someone. Trees grew wild, twisting and free, while grass was shorn close and neat by rambling, untidy sheep. There were walls, but they were crumbling and losing their way like forgotten battlefield bones. The children played around the mobile home while the three nominal adults sat on its roof and finally looked back over their shoulders. The line of hills to the west that they had just crossed seemed like a sensible boundary. The sun crashed and burnt to blackened embers behind it. The sunset lost and was gone. The air gave up its crimson and became a sedate, sweet indigo. They'd be safe now. Now what? said Wayne. We have to go back for her, said Janet. What? The six children ran and jumped and shouted and laughed. They'd been stuck in the town for months. This was the first time they'd been out in the country. But they had no home and they had no money and they had no security or support or future. There weren't wolves out here anymore, but there were people, and you know what bastards they could be. John had nothing, nothing but the need to protect them. He couldn't risk their safety. He couldn't pretend he didn't know that they needed him. So could he pretend to himself that he couldn't help that little girl, crouching in her nightmare home all the way behind them to the west? We just escaped from her, 
Wayne said. We didn't escape, replied John. We just pretended not to understand what she was saying to us. Janet took his hand in the creeping darkness. But it's too much, isn't it? What are we supposed to do? John's voice cracked. We have to keep them safe. But how? With what? Forever? Cleaning other people's homes for the rest of our lives? Making shelter in some kind of leftover nightmare we've caught like the plague from some terrified little orphan? Is that all we get? Wayne moved away from them. You don't owe anyone anything, either of you. You've been abandoned, both of you. There's no supposed to. There's no responsibility. You won't be able to save yourself if you're spending all your energy on everyone else. Not everyone else, said John. Just the ones we can help. Mate, night is going to fall any minute. It's going to get cold. You're going to turn to stone just like that little girl turned to stone more than a hundred years ago. You aren't a parent. You're a gravestone with indoor plumbing. All you're going to do is fail and die and raise a family of psychotic nightmares. Do you want to spend the next century turning into something from fucking creepy haunted house? But Janet grinned. Not a haunted house. She took Wayne's hand as well. A haunted home. She kissed John, still holding Wayne's hand. John kissed her back. He was the mobile home all along, in spite of all his hopes. A shelter carried in the wind, built with no discernible purpose. He broke off the kiss and looked at Janet. He needed an architect. He kissed her again and pulled Wayne closer to them both. I don't want this, Wayne said. Frequently, in the past, when rooted in place as brick and mortar, Wayne would be broken into by thieves. He would feel his windows broken, he would feel himself cut open, ripped into, invaded. He would feel strangers' bodies moving into him and through him. Sometimes, those nights, he would eat those burglars, swallow them up whole. When he woke the next morning, intact again and human, he would feel heavily and alone, dead bones lost somehow inside him. There had to be a better way to live. So he kissed John. So he pulled Janet closer. Janet held on to them both. Night fell. They stopped running and finally built their foundations. The children had such a tangential connection to normal that when they woke the next morning they weren't surprised to find a short terrace of three houses suddenly next to the mobile home. The middle terrace looked familiar, the house John had given them of course, but the other two were new. Both resembled John's house, as if put together by the same builder, but the bungalow on the left seemed a little crooked and the one on the right was taller and actually had a tower and a turret, as if it was standing guard or perhaps acting as a lighthouse. All three houses were open, all three had kitchens filled with food, all three were warm. The children never saw John, Janet or Wayne ever again. The children weren't surprised either when, two or three days later, a small child arrived at the terrace. She was pale and small and had bright blue eyes and was dressed in old-fashioned clothes that seemed quite new, though spattered with blood and gore. She sat quietly watching them play, joining in only at the end. When the children went to bed, the small pale child hugged each of them in turn, but remained outside. When they awoke in the morning, the children found that the little girl vanished, and a fourth house was now facing the terrace. The new building was boxy and symmetrical, and above its green front door was a round window of blue stained glass that looked like an eye. After the arrival of the small girl, other visitors came to them too. Perhaps the girl had put out the word, or perhaps the new lighthouse really was a beacon of sorts. Children and young people came to stay, as well as adults, and sometimes the strangers stayed and became friends, and sometimes they just caught their breath before moving on again. Sometimes the strangers vanished overnight, and in the morning a new building was among them. Those strangers were often older, more tired, more battered by the world, it seemed, to the children, as if they had had enough and wanted to rest, wanted to build something new and useful. 
The new buildings became a road. The road became a neighbourhood, became a village. Some were new houses with satellite dishes and conservatories. Some were older, renovated from neglected memories of long ago and far away when a home was something to be taken for granted and then left behind. But not anymore. Homes took root here, where they were needed. The village grew and strangers came and became family. Sometimes the strangers turned nasty, but that was okay. The last house on the left was there to swallow them up. Look for it, if you're lost on the road or alone where it matters or your own home is broken. In spite of what you may have heard or believed, someone has grown a place for you. The End